rolling. Hey guys, it's David and Jack from The Artist Notepad, and before you head in and we head into this week's episode, um, we, we just want to tell you a little bit about what's happening with this week's episode, as well as mm-hmm. why it's happening, and this sounds like it's incredibly suspenseful and that it's some groundbreaking story. It's really not, <laughs> um, but but let's, let's sort of increase the tension by not even sort of telling you immediately, because David... I, I want to hear how you're doing, man. We, we've just skipped over the intro and we're going straight into the old, how you going? I'm going good, Jack. It's a lovely Easter evening of Monday. <laughs> and we had a good time today, didn't we? We caught up yeah, today, went we to sure the, the, the local, the yep. local, not really local, not but really. we went down to the sure pub, us. had a burger, he had some wings. Had some Good wings. time. I've been been pretty good how are you my friend yeah man not bad little bit little bit disappointed we had the most unsuccessful turtleneck shop of all time with you me and episode yeah. two guest simon peter bernardo um bernardo. didn't go well um turns out that um this will blow your mind david um women what is- have more fashion selection than men what? <laughs> what? Is that a good reaction? Doesn't sound um, shocked. Yep. Yeah, yeah, we all knew it, but there were plenty of women women's um, uh, apparel with with turtlenecks. But um, our good yeah, friend Simon and guys. you and I had, had jumped on board guys. to get some turtlenecks. We were gonna rock Berwyn in our friend. turtlenecks. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. unfortunately, it could not be. Very much, unfortunately, um, the. Burwood missed out on a spectacle of us three walking down the street in our turtlenecks. So, um, yeah, is what it is. Got to move forward. Yeah, Got to we sometimes, Steve, you know, Steve there's, Jobs there's, that thing, man. Absolutely. I, I I wanted to do the old look with the the turtleneck and then the blazer over the top. I I, I rate that look. Um, classic, classic. Not, not sure if I could have pulled it off myself, but I would have. I would have given it my best. Um, but but you know, it's just was not to be today. So. That was unfortunate, but it was good to see you and good to see Simon. Good to catch up with you in person. It's always trippy for the first few minutes when we're, we're chatting in person because I, I it feels like I'm like, like your your face just doesn't look right because it's, you know, it's properly three dimensional as opposed to just on a screen in front of me. Same and with you. It takes some adjusting. I'm like, something looks wrong with David and it's just like, oh no, he's just, he's a real, he's a real person. Surprise. I'm in the flesh. Yeah, man, you look taller in real life. You're very small, you know, on the on our Zoom calls. But it's good to see that you you haven't got smaller. I don't know how to take that, but <laughs> I'll just the good, I'll good size that you are in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a compliment. It's compliment. So, what's happening with this this episode this this week, um, David? Is that we we got a lost episode. We, we've officially had a lost episode, which has changed everything. Yeah. Um, we're a proper podcast now. We've, we've met Sorry, the last guys. criteria. Um, mm. Episode 44, was it? Or 45? 44. 44. We were going to be doing a, well, we did do mm-hmm. a review of Summer Walker's album, The Last Day of Summer. Um, unfortunately, one of us, not going to mention names, but David's audio um, was corrupted. Um <laughs> <laughs> so we weren't able to get through that. Names. Look, we, we won't mention any names or put the blame on anyone, but yep. um, it was absolutely David's fault. 
<laughs> um, so what uh, we're going to do is potentially do you all a favor because our review of The Lighthouse was our longest episode that we've ever recorded. So we're going to split it in half and we're going to do it over two weeks. So this week we'll be slipping into your ears with the first part of The Lighthouse. And then next one. week we'll be giving you part two. Um, and then after that, we've got a couple of guests coming up who we're very excited to speak to. One of them, David, mm. pranked today by telling him that I was really mad that it wasn't going ahead. Yeah. And he sends me a big paragraph apologizing. So, David, yeah. props to you for making our guests feel terrible about themselves. Um, you got to prank them once in a while, man. Yeah, it was you really... You humble them that way. Because I, I didn't know the context. I didn't know that you told him that I was mad. So, I just got this massive message saying, like, big apology. And I was just like... Bro, chill out. What? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was just like, man, calm down. You just missed the podcast. Yeah, it's sorry, fine. bro. If you're but listening he, to he, this he right now, I was pr- a proper man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you're listening to this right now, hope you're okay. It was all just fun and games, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we'll we'll be chatting to him in a couple of weeks' time. We've got another guest after that who we're very excited to chat to. We've actually never spoken to her either of us before, um, but she makes some really cool stuff. And there are a few mutual connections there. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, looking forward to speaking to, to her. Um, and then we are getting very close to our episode 50, David, because um, we'll, we'll have another film review before episode 50 rocks up. But mm-hmm. on episode 50, David and I have got a bit of a surprise for you guys. And we're not going to give it away just yet. We just know that it's going to be a very special episode from us. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add on that bit of a ramble, David. No, man, we just got to keep it low-key until they, they find out. Keep it They'll very, find out when they find out. Very low-key. Um, but speaking of special episodes or special dates um, to look forward to, David, what's, what's the significance of today, April 5th, the day that we are recording? Happy anniversary! Yeah. Tan is officially one year old uh, podcast um, since we started last year. And man, it's been a trip, bro. It's congrats to you congrats <laughs> to me um thank you to all our supporters absolutely like the ones that have been staying loyal liking and sharing and sending love hat emojis on our instagram posts and our social media you, Much you love said to like you, guys. you say the ones that say loyal as if we've had fans who've like abandoned us <laughs> <laughs> uh, some have yeah oh, i know who really? they are oh okay yeah should we? I know should you, we? I know where you live. Should we shout them out and like put? No, no, no. Should we put some that. kind that's, of that's like mean. bounty on their heads or something? Be like, like that? what's going on, guys? Well, we'll, we'll send in a, a tan mug for anyone who finds these people <laughs> and get them back on the pod. Nah, we should do merch, man. It's a special occasion. Today's a today's a very, you know. We, we had a anniversary episode 20, yeah. but this is a proper anniversary. Um, it, sh- it certainly yeah. is. Um, and obviously, like, we started the podcast a little bit earlier on in the year, in, like, January is when the planning... Well, actually, the planning started in December um, or November in 2019, but we started recording mm-hmm. actual visual stuff in 2020 in January or February, I believe. But the first audio episode, because of some issues that we had on that end and COVID and all that, our first audio episode didn't come out until April 5th. And that is, yeah, one year ago today from when we're recording. And that episode was the... um, the Chunlock, I think we called it, but it was, it was, oh no, no, sorry. We didn't mm. end up, that was our, that was our working title. We ended up calling it the COVID special, which was episode 1.5. And 
And it's still one of our highest yeah. um, downloaded episodes to this day because people really jumped on board and then they realized what it what, what we actually were doing and they're just like, yeah, not for me. But <laughs> it, was, it was good while it lasted. <laughs> no, yeah. we, ha- we have peaked. Those who have stick, stuck around, those who have stuck around and listened to our latest ups, they get, they get the good stuff because we, we eased into it. We're very comfortable <laughs> on this platform now, so... Oh yeah, yeah, going back and listening to those early episodes is uh, painful. It's painful, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to. Don't yeah, even talk I, about one point five. So bro. during our during our little hiatus over the break, um, I did listen to a few of them, and it was, I astounded myself with the sort of content that I would leave in in those early days, as opposed to now where a lot of stuff we just get rid of. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. glad we don't do a radio We're broadcast, David, otherwise we would embarrass ourselves every week. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God for that. Yeah, man. But I hope you guys enjoy this episode unless mm. we have more things to announce, but I think we've covered everything. Yeah, I think we? we have too. Yeah. And um, yeah, David, do you have anything else to say before we launch into part one of The Lighthouse? We really enjoyed this episode and we got a special guest to come on and join us for it. So yeah, do you, you got any... Any comments about the episode or just anything, you know, just you want to tell me that I'm Sit a good back, friend or anything relax. like that? Oh, I don't have anything to say to you. Oh, I was okay, just okay. about to yep. speak uh, to our yep. listeners. But That's yeah, cool. you yep. get enough of that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yep. yeah. Stop, stop trying to make me say good things about you, all right? Oh, I wasn't. I was just curious. Thing, I just thought maybe, I thought maybe you just might yeah, want yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Okay. Um, all right. I'll, I'll <laughs> get up. Okay. <laughs> well guys sit back relax because there's going to be a quite a few minutes of breaking down and analyzing different um film techniques and meanings and motifs and different stuff like that so hope you guys enjoy hope you guys oh, yeah, by the enjoy way this um, guys, as much as david we. does not shut up on this episode he just talks non-stop <laughs> for the three hours that we were recording oh, um no it wasn't yes. quite three hours it was two and a half yeah it's just ridiculous <laughs> so I, I apologize in advance for the copious amounts of um <laughs> words that david contributes and really just key like really th- well thought out analysis that he brings to the table i just <laughs> in, in advance i just <laughs> wow i bet you guys can count the amount of words that I say. David David clearly watched this film just on repeat before we did this episode because his, his um, depth of knowledge on this film was beyond extensive. <laughs> it was... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah get get ready for it guys it's, it's a hell of a ride yeah. no david did absolutely bring some valuable contributions even if they are you know less it's it's um quality not quantity right david <laughs> wow even though they're less he says it's a quant yeah it's a quality bro it's the quality of what i say i i save my breath and my words for when it's needed you know i don't absolutely. ramble like some people oh is there well, some beef going on now? Let's ooh, uh, ooh. Let, let's 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 just call this quits here, and let's let the our lovely listeners head on into part one of our review of the Lighthouse, wonderful film um, by director Eggers. Forget forget his name. I think it's Robert Eggers, um, mm. starring um, Robert Patterson and Willem Dafoe. Fantastic film. Um, we, we all really enjoyed it to varying levels, but we hope you enjoy our review. Don't forget to watch the movie first and sit back, relax, and just lay down. Lay down. Peace.
Welcome to the Artist Notepad, where we explore artistry, we talk life, and we talk dark and creepy, man. I'm David. And I'm Jack. And I'm in the process of getting up um, my script, so I, I will, I, I'm just going to talk because today we are going to be reviewing uh, The Lighthouse, which is a 2019 Ooh. film directed by Robert Eggers. And okay, I've got the script now. And I'm Jack. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Tan and Chill, which we are going to discuss The Lighthouse. Joining us today for the... Joining us today will oh. be, I've just butchered this completely. Joining us today will be a very special guest appearing on TAN for not once, not twice, but thrice, the third time. <laughs> a film expert, a movie connoisseur, made by who, aka Lus Kim, aka Luke Kim. But before we bring him on, David, after I've absolutely knocked that out of the park, how are you doing, <laughs> my friend? Fantastic, brother. Um, can't believe this week's already come to an end. We're like on the weekends right now. We are like chatting on Zoom. I'm enjoying some gorgeous geisha tea to tea. I got some sweet chilies and sour cream red rock deli. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean okay. kettle chips. And I'm, I'm ready jealous, to get into to it, man. I'm pretty jealous. I haven't had lunch yeah. yet, man. It's 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 one forty three when we're recording. So if mm-hmm. if all goes um, <laughs> as scheduled for this particular episode, I should be eating lunch at about five PM tonight. Ha 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 ha! How you doing? Funny joke, Jack. Anyway, so this week, um, as I okay. said, we're going to be interviewing. Sorry, what did you say, David? How you going? Oh, how am I doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, man. I've been a bit sick this week. Um, not COVID, oh, but no. but we're back. We're back in action. Um, I'm very excited to review this film. It's completely blown me away. I've seen it twice within the last sort of. 12 hours or so um mm. i'm really keen to to be checking this out because yeah this this movie blew me away and it's so complicated that we really don't have enough time to discuss this movie in depth so i will save any more um elaboration on that and we will skip a segment today david because we just do not have enough time so i yes. it, it would bring me great pleasure um to to allow you david to introduce our guest <laughs> Not just once, as as Jack said, not just once, not twice, but appearing for a third time. Made by who, a.k.a. Lus Kim, a.k.a. Luke Kim. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again, guys. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for coming on. I feel so. It's, it's actually an honor every single time, man. Seriously. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Did you get uh-huh. some kind of renovation, Luke? Because your kitchen is yeah. looking really nice. Um, yeah, uh, only, only like people who know this movie will understand this reference. <laughs> um, do you, do you, uh, do you guys know what it is by any chance? No, I don't. I don't recognize it. <laughs> it's okay. Don't worry. This, people won't. People won't know what we're talking what about. What film anyways, is it? Uh, what is it, about? It's yeah. Cat in the Hat. Oh, <laughs> oh. the scene in Cat in the Hat where he um pulls out the cupcake and then um yeah chops off his own tail. It's a very, it's a meme. Oh, it's a so meme dark. scene. No, I, sh- I should know that. Anyway, so let's get straight into this film. Um, thank you yep. for joining us, Luke. This is one of your favorite films. So you're going to be a fantastic um, 
advantage to us in terms of mm-hmm. getting getting mm-hmm. to the nuts and bolts of what this is about and really exploring this piece of art that has been presented to us by director Robert Eggers. It was written by Robert and his brother Max. Um, it's starring Robert Patterson as Winslow slash Tommy Howard. We'll get into that. And Willem Dafoe as Thomas Wake, or we'll probably just refer to him as Tom. It's also featuring Valeria Caraman as the mermaid or siren and Logan Hawks as Ephraim Winslow. The sound design was done by Damien Volpe or Volpe, I don't know. Um, the score was done by uh, Mark Volpe. Corvin. The cinematography by Jaron Blaschk, uh, which was nominated for Best Cinema Photography. Um, and I have a little bit of information on the uh, the score and also on the, the way that this film was shot. So I don't know if you guys want me to just get that out of the way now and then we'll discuss a little bit more. Sure. Yep. Okay. So the score, very interested. Um, interesting. It's the this the score is um, centered on brass instruments with some orchestral production playing, including this friction rub effect, which was achieved by dragging a wooden mallet, which has a, a rubber rubber ball on the top, um, across like various mm. surfaces, including wood and glass, uh, to create some really interesting effects. Other instruments presented in the score include a glass harmonica, which is designed to replicate the sound made by uh, wine glasses when they've been filled with water and you're like hitting them or rubbing your fingers around them and they create that strange airy sound as well as an ocean mm. harp which is a stainless steel bowl with bronze rods around the rim that give off some vibrant um, ethereal sound which used uh, which was used with a, a friction mallet as well. So Robert Eggers, when he was talking about this, said, I was looking for an aleatoric, which I had to look up what that word means. Um, it means random choice or by chance. So it's, it's like random um, random sounds, I guess, score with nods to ancient Greek music, which is going to come back. I wanted to de-emphasize Ooh. strings and focus on glass and instruments that you can blow into. Um, you're looking for woodwind and brass there, mate, including horns and pipes. It needed to sound like the sea, but I realized we needed elements that would also harken back to the old movie scores of the day which is why we've got strings in there as well um in terms of the what it was shot on um this was shot on 35 millimeter black and white double x film um it they also use vintage bolter lenses from the as early as 1918 and as late as 1938 which um was an influence on the decision to use the aspect ratio of 1.19 to 1 which is pretty much square um, it's not the only reason they went with a square, but um, to complete the look, they also used a scene filter, which emulated the look and the feel of um, the orthochromatic film of the late 19th century, which is important because this filter blocks out the red wavelengths from hitting the film so that they appear black. And the reason why that's so interesting is because um, our pores and skin tones often have a lot of red in them. And by blocking out the red and making it black, it actually really brings out the imperfections and details on the actors' faces. Um, which is part of the reason that some of these shots, particularly the ones of Tom, um, when he's sort of like giving his monologues, are so vivid and like stunning and really haunting because you're seeing a level of detail that you often don't see. Um, I think the black and white and the shadow created by the black and white also really helps create that um, darkness that you see in particularly yeah Tom's face, but sometimes in... Um, Howard's face. And so before we begin, I just thought, should we just say from now on, we're going to refer to Robert Patterson's character as Howard and Willem Dafoe's character as Tom, which we'll just make because they're both called Tom. So just Howard and Tom. And then that way we don't refer because at the start when I was writing these notes, I was referring to him as Winslow. But then it got confusing when I was trying to distinguish between the real Winslow and, um, and Howard. So 
that will come up. If anyone has not seen the movie um, at this point in the podcast, stop listening right now. Go watch this film and come back because there absolutely will be spoilers. And this film is so magical that you deserve to watch the full thing before getting any kind of um, exterior input into your head of what it should be about Mm -hmm. or could be about. Um, A lot of it is down to interpretation. So please go and watch the film. Enjoy it. Um, and then when you're done, come back and listen to us talk. So, gentlemen, that is my little spiel at the start about some of the technical stuff and the people involved. Where do you want to take it from here? Um, yeah, let's talk about the cinematography first, actually, because then, yeah, you mentioned a lot of the details about the, like, the technical um, specifics about what they used mm. in creating this piece. Um, mm. First off, I just want to say, like, almost every frame to me is like impeccably framed yeah. and composed like almost perfect it looks like a painting mm. like every shot um i just remember like watching this film for the first time with my two mates at like denny cinemas in newtown and i was just blown away from the very first like opening shot um mm. just from everything from the film grain they used to, that which comes naturally from the film stock they were using yep. <clears throat> and the aspect ratio the one nineteen to one which is Honestly, at the, when you first watch it, you think it's a four by three ratio, mm. which people use to kind of either, you know, to create a psychological effect of like, oh, you know, you feel claustrophobic when you watch it or you feel nostalgic when you right. watch it. Because it reminds you of like old film because um, back then films were kind of presented in that um, the aspect ratio. But it's, it's 1.19 by like 2.1, which is a, yeah, not your typical four by three. It's more like what Jack said, a more of a square frame. And right away, that just kind of puts you in a, in a headspace where you just feel cramped, you know, mm. Um, mm. super claustrophobic. And every element of the frame is essentially squeezed in. And therefore, yeah, you feel that sense that you're just kind of being like the walls are closing in on you and there's no escape. And it also kind of adds to the, the themes of the, of the um, film itself. Like a lot of the themes of the film um, talk about you know power and what the lighthouse represents which is like you know transcendent knowledge and the way it's designed you know it's it's tall frame and vertical nature right. it also looks kind of like phallic in nature yeah yep. yep, um which kind of is emphasized by like the vertical framing since you have like so what, what we mean by a square aspect ratio is that the black bars on the side mm. you know how you watch films sometimes oftentimes they're on the top and bottom if it's a square yeah, frame, yeah. most of the time it's on the left and right. Mm. So therefore, when you compose a shot like that, you need to think a lot about vertical elements. So like, I think, yeah, the choice to use such an aspect ratio and stuff like that is really, really added to like, like, a, like a psychological experience mm. that the viewers get to, yeah. Can I just see. add on that, Luke? So um, I, I find it interesting because um, for us watching on sort of a square um, aspect ratio like it feels very much like oh they've you know they've cut off the edges but in actual yeah. fact normally um, when like a lot of cameras shoot in like that four by three or something a lot more square than we see on the widescreen um, sort of aspect ratios that we're used to and so I recently watched um, Zack Snyder's Justice League the yeah. uh, and that is in a I think that's a four by three as well or yes. yeah and um it, it feels really weird at the start, 
But actually yeah. with him, so the way that it's interesting, interestingly presented when Zach talks about how he chose the aspect ratio for that is he refers to it more as preserving the natural state that it was filmed in as opposed to sort of creating something different. And so yeah. when, normally when uh, things that are shot and appear in widescreen, you're actually cutting off the top and the bottom so you're actually missing some of what's in the shot so I, I just thought it was interesting luke you you presenting a different perspective to the way that i sort of came at it which was instead of um uh sort of staying faithful to the way that it was probably initially shot and i don't know exactly what the aspect ratio that it was shot in but instead seeing it more as a um something that has to be thought of about when filming and you're absolutely right but i just didn't really consider that that obviously when they're lining up all their shots they'd be thinking about well we're not cutting out the top and the bottom so everything in this whole sort of um, frame of view is all vital and everything needs to be perfect which probably has led to what you were referring to about every single shot being so picturesque it being so stunning and perfectly placed mm, exactly and like Honestly, like, and also on top of that, the fact that they are shooting on film stock yeah. um, means that they like we have like tr like actual legitimate black and white mm. um, color that comes out of it. Yeah, like, and it, it's like think about they're using cameras and and lenses that are, like that are so like ancient, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, Nineteen. And, and, what was it? Nineteen oh three that I said. Um, yeah. Yeah, equipment from that's so ancient. So like, nineteen eighteen, uh, sorry, nineteen eighteen to nineteen thirty eight was the when where the lenses come from. Those periods of time. Wow. Yeah, and historic it's also, equipment. Mm. And it's honestly sort of mind boggling because when you're like on a set like that, you need to like see what you're doing, right? But then if you're using such complicated like methods of yeah. filming. With digital, you can just have a monitor there and it shows you exactly yep. what you're seeing, right? But then with something like this, when you're using antique lenses, antique film stock, it's very hard to like, yeah, to see what you're doing properly and, and make make sure lighting is done well or like, yeah, what's what's in focus, what isn't, which, me which means that a lot of this film, there are actually a lot of shots where focus is actually... Um, actually, they make mistakes in focus pulling. You can actually see some shots where the actors go a little bit out I, of focus. I noticed then, that, but to be honest, yeah. I, I maybe I giving it too much credit. I assume that that was part of the effect, um, especially. And maybe I am like I watching watching <laughs> watching this um, immediately after Zack Snyder's Justice League has been really interesting because a lot of the cinematography, despite it being so different, some of the techniques are actually quite similar that I've noticed. Two people who are very artistic with their um, choices of shots and their cinematography and so he was I, I don't know the name of this lens but this lens has such a short field of focus that even if things were a tiny bit like things moved a tiny bit away from the camera they would instantly just go completely out of focus and so in that okay. headspace I sort of approached it when I saw these things going out of focus that it was an artistic choice but maybe you're right Luke especially after hearing about the complexities and the exhaustive process that they had in terms of putting this piece together and all the filming and everything that went wrong. Maybe they were a genuine mistake. So they just decided to keep for the integrity of the shots. Yeah. Um, it, like cause in this one in particular where um, Willem the first character, um, Thomas was like, like um, performing a monologue and it's like, it's going for like minutes on end yeah. and it's an amazing mm. monologue and amazing performance. And then, I remember me and my friends in the cinema watching it and we we all noticed that like he was out of focus yeah, for right. a lot of the thing. And we're like, oh, was that intentional? Yeah, was that yeah, like yeah, a mistake? Yeah. And we came to the conclusion that it's a mistake, but then the performance is too good. Exactly. To kept it in. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you're probably right. You're probably right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't notice it for elongated periods of time. I only noticed it in particular spots. So 
Um, yeah. And I think like the fact that it's in black and white as well, it, it's honestly like amazing because often with film, you can actually influence a lot of the audience's like emotions and feelings when they're watching it by like psychologically by choosing what like color palette you yeah. want, right? The Matrix, the green tones make it feel like neo-noir, right? Mm. Or Mad Max, the, the, the like, you know, the hot, like warm tones yeah, yeah. kind of add to the like the desert, heat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, desert the warfare dryness, of yeah. that. Mm. Um, whereas this, when you're shooting with black and white, you literally only have shades of black, gray, and white to work with, right? So how are you going to guide an audience's emotion? Mm. So like that, and then when you come, like when you go into a film <clears throat> thinking about, oh, we're going to shoot in black and white, it's so hard because you've got to think about, oh, how are we going to light the scene? Yeah. How are we going to guide mm. the audience's attention? Because you, yeah, you only have like shades of black, white, and gray to work with, like. And lighting, often, as you as you touched on there, uh, yeah. Luke, is hugely important to be able to exactly because the shadows are your enemy, but they're also your friend, <laughs> and they can exactly. help create some of these stunning contrast scenes that we've seen. Um, particularly, like as as you referred to, I think the monologue you're referring to is um, Defoe's third monologue, where they're pissed drunk and he's basically um, cursing him. He's putting a uh, like a hex on him and yeah. the shadows beneath his eyes do so much to um, bring out his eyes like the just the shadowing exactly, around yeah. them and so yeah as you were saying Luke like lighting is yeah. is so important as well as the vibrancy of the colors like I, I watched a um, a quick little shot of it's when um, Howard is pushing out the boat from the dock when he's trying to escape and yeah. I, I've oh, seen man. I've seen basically someone recording from behind the camera so it's in color and it's yeah. there's so much color in the shot it's so vibrant right. and um, Luke maybe you might be able to confirm this because my speculation is the reason why you provide so much vibrancy is so there's as much contrast as possible when everything is going to get pulled down to just black gray and white adding yeah. additional color contrast um, so a colorful scene can provide more um, sort of distinguish you can distinguish between the shades of black gray and white more easily maybe mm -hmm. I'm wrong there that was just my speculation no you're, you're correct and also like when you talked about um, them using a cyan filter in the film um, adds so much more to that because yeah. then yeah it blocks out the red frequencies right so therefore the sky will look always kind of like gray yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like a bricks will like look much more, um, yeah, so much more contrast to it or look much more textured mm. wood as well. Mm. will look more textured as well. Like, um, Oh man, this film is so good. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm so annoyed it didn't win best cinematography. Like, yeah, I'm sure like 1917 was a great film. Yeah. And, uh, but 1917 was like, it was like a gag to me. It was, it was like, it was a one trick pony and it was, it was extraordinary. Don't get me wrong. I think it was yeah. extraordinary, but there's yeah. so much more subtlety in the cine cinematography of this film versus just like, Oh, it's all one shot. <laughs> exactly. And, and like we talk, when we talk about lighting as well, like apparently for this film, when they use like lighting in nighttime scenes, so in nighttime scenes when it's just them two talking over dinner, right? Mm. There's often like a lamp in the center of the table and it's like, it's like blindingly light. That's the only thing that's lighting the scene. So you have instantly like a very interesting scene where yeah. like, like when we talk about cinematography, um, where like yeah, the whole scene's lit by this one key light. Yeah. And mm. apparently that key light was so, so, so bright that staff on set were wearing sunglasses to like wow. to to wow. see what was going on and when they're performing and talking to each other apparently they could even see each other because the light was that brightly right. like strong wow. um and they had to Couldn't make it tell. 
Yeah, exactly. And like, it looks so natural when you're watching it. Kind it kind of then- works with um, <laughs> like Defoe's natural squinty look. Like it kind of works with that. So if he was squinting, yeah, yeah. It, it, it almost like added yeah. to the character of his facial expression that always like that undermining glare that he has, that he's constantly looking at um, Howard like his either suspicious or he's just a dog as he continues to call him as the film goes on um, which yeah. is quite important but do you um, want to continue with cinema, cinema photography or is it- yeah one more yep. one more point um i think so when we talk about the the lighting and stuff we talked about like high contrast lighting where mm. it's just literally one light and then shadow right um i think that really added a lot because yeah like only half the face a lot of the time is like exposed for the characters like you only see like half the face because half the face is yeah. lit and I think that like emphasizes the theme or like the character um, design because as we figure, as we see throughout the film, they're hiding a lot. They're hiding a lot of their past, a lot about the the darker nature. And I think the fact that you, when you when you only see half the face, that you know, um, when we talk about cinematography, sort of you know, emphasizes the idea that we don't know a lot about these characters. That a lot of them are like hidden, and a lot of them are unknown. And there's often like the aspect of duality to the character mm. and i think like that is also that is a perfect example of how like well thought out this film was in regards to just the cinematography standpoint and how it just immediately creates a texture for the film that the audience like subconsciously res- like subconsciously experiences you know yep um and yep. you feel mm-hmm. you feel something immediately for just by watching it absolutely and yeah that's all i have to say about cinematography yeah um, should we move into the audio side of things? Yes. Okay. Amazing. So <clears throat> do you have anything you want to start us off with? Obviously I've touched, touched on the score, which I think is just such an exceptional score. Um, the sound design was done by Damien Volpe, as I, as I said, or Volpe, I don't know how to pronounce that. And the scores by Mark Corvin. Um, the, the thing that I love, and especially in the introduction, um, the opening scenes, but it does come back throughout, is how the sound design interacts with the score itself. It's so interesting. Like at the start, we hear the foghorn, which is a key part of the sound design and the story itself, which goes recurringly throughout the film. But at the very start, mm. if you watch the foghorn... Um, is actually this it's it's in tune with the music that was written it was like the, the because the foghorn interestingly um basically the so let's just quickly just have a, a talk about robert and max egger eggers um i haven't seen the is it the witch his debut film yeah his previous film was the witch that was his debut film yes right yeah i i haven't seen that introductory film but for this to be his second feature film um, and for him to bring on board such illustrious actors, um, as well as just to write such a complete and um, boundary-breaking story, I just think is so exceptional. And something that he and his brother are both known for is the amount of research they put into their films. And one of the things that I found out is that the foghorn that they use, um, they actually they they researched um, foghorns and they found a guy who was a like a specialist. He's like a foghorn enthusiast, and this guy managed to source mm. them a foghorn that was from the era that they're recording in, which I believe is supposed to be in the 1890s around then. Um, and he wow. found them a, a foghorn that was specific to that era. Um, and the, as we know, the foghorn goes throughout the film and um, definitely has some symbolic nature to it, which we'll get to later on. Um, 
yeah, I just love the way that not just the foghorn, but also as the ship comes in into the into the shot, the clanking of the chains and, and the 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 engine of the ship, it's all in time with the music that was written around it. And that's just so intricate and clever. And I just really appreciate the way that the sound design and the composition have been mm. so closely connected and they, they really work together to create one cohesive sound rather than you've got your score and you've got your sound design. It's like one thing to get together. Yeah. You, want to talk, cool. you want to talk about, you want to talk about how you felt about the score and sound design, David? <laughs> no, I agree with um, everything Jack said. <laughs> I noticed all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when, when, when Jack was talking about the constant, like the, the, the foghorn and stuff, that's the first thing we hear. And it's also the thing we consistently hear throughout the film, right? Yeah. In the background, he's mm, mm. blaring, this foghorn blaring in the background constantly. It's like a droning sound almost, mm. right? And just like how we're, like the audience is kind of invited to experience, like to kind of share in the experience of the characters as like, like as they're going mad. It kind of also like the fact that we also hear the foghorn constantly go off is all is, is kind of yeah in, in a sense we are also feeling very uncomfortable we are also kind of kind of slowly being driven mad by a constant you know blaring in the background mm. and i think it's to me it felt like um it was like a constant like earache or something yeah, a pounding earache that this, it was annoying yeah yeah and uh, but then the director said it was it was intentional right yeah because and they, they made sure that it wasn't in the film too much or they said they would like literally cause the audience to like walk out of the theater. <laughs> um, so they, they use it sparingly, even though I don't think it's sparing because they, it oh, comes yeah. out a lot. <laughs> but I, I think like this, the fact that they use it constantly, like, constantly throughout the film is so, it's such, it's such another ingenious idea to create another level of like, you know, uncertainty and, and, um, you know, dread. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and the score itself does such a fantastic job of just following the mood. And, and when the, the tension <laughs> is rising between um, Howard and Tom, the, the, the score does such a good job of replicating that tension and it rising and rising and rising. There's another scene as well that I can think of where I just loved what the score was doing. And it's very simple and it's done many times, but I just think it's done so well is um, after... Howard kills the seagull and we're moving up the um, the lighthouse towards the the wind. Um, I don't know. I can't remember what it's called, but it, it tracks the direction of the wind. The, the, um, the sound of the composition is not just rising in intensity, but it's rising in pitch as well. The pitch and the volume are mm -hmm. all going up as it's following the camera shot moving up. And it's something so simple and it's been done many times, but I just appreciate the <clears throat> consistent attention to detail within the score and the sound design itself. They just do such a good <coughs> job. Um, something interesting about the sound design is um, Defoe's farts. The, those were added in post-production they were actually scripted so the farts are scripted like yeah. in the original screenplay um and really? yeah 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 and yeah. but what's interesting about them right is um let me just find this because uh, i've got it written down sorry give me a sec it's more than a sec jack I'm, Hurry i've up. got a lot of stuff here you're you're, you're pissing us off okay um the audio of Defoe's farts were actually added in post-production. So they, they didn't come from a sound library. 
which means that these farts were recorded specifically for this film. <laughs> Damien Volpe stated that he wouldn't reveal how he created the sounds of passing gas and that he will take this secret to his grave. <laughs> so I just thought that was very amusing. Um, but yeah. Um, also, I, I think you mentioned real farts, you know. <laughs> They're like, what, put a but, mic but next who's, to... Who's, no, they, they are real farts, but whose farts are yeah, they? Will he, probably his own. Defoe's, Volpe's, Eggers. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Patterson's. Maybe it's a combination. Know. Yeah. Maybe it was um, Valeria Carmen's who played the, the siren. Oh, we, we, we'll never know. <laughs> like uh, some of them were like really airy farts, you know. Like. <laughs> I'm glad you're contributing Anyways. in such a monumental way to this, this episode, David. <laughs> Hey, I, I add where I can, man. I add where I can. <laughs> um, I think you also mentioned at the beginning of the introduction that um, you said that the score kind of is reminiscent of like early, like like kind of wasn't like 1980s films. I didn't like say an era specifically, but yeah, earlier yeah. horror movies. Yeah, like early horror movies. And one thing that comes to mind is like Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. Right. right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And that. That sound of like you know when the killer comes in With the and strings. opens like yeah. like in the bathroom you, that, that dun, the strings dun, right dun. yeah yeah and I think mm. when we watch the scenes like that where you know suddenly Willem Dafoe's character pops out with an axe or is chasing him with an axe or mm. like mm. Yeah, yeah. things like that like the score is kind of reminiscent of that I think I, I felt and. I, yeah, I find honestly, it less um, staccato and more like sorry. Um, it's less sharp and dotted and more like elongated. I, I noticed like, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's funny because it's almost reminiscent to me. I almost re- reminiscent of like Nolan's um, iconic, like horn sound that he uses. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. Burm, burm. <laughs> and then like the, the roll of the foghorn almost is like that Nolan, mm. like intense, just, um, I can't remember what it's, there's a, there's a word in music to describe it, but it, doesn't really matter you know what i'm talking about like that, that elongated like tense yeah. note and that it's like loud and it comes over mm. everything in the score just mm. like um that that sort of horn sound that nolan uses in his films especially in inception you hear it a lot in inception but um mm. pretty much in everything he does yeah and the film's also mixed in mono right so yes, like yes. immediately Sorry, you just get like an, another layer of this like authenticity i think where they're trying to go for like a period piece right or something that t- takes place in the yeah early 20th century i wonder um, did you watch this in in a cinema luke yeah i watched it in a cinema and <laughs> one of the honestly one of the best cinema experiences i've ever been to i don't know i've never been to wow. denny cinemas before in newtown and i didn't know how like big the screen was gonna be the screen was perfect size the, the like you could see every single detail everything was so sharp the sound system was amazing right I honestly had the best hour and 40 minutes of my entire life like, watching <laughs> this film. It was so good. It was so good. Wow. Um, I, I just find it interesting because obviously in um, in cinema and I in surround on my MacBook. and in surround sound they um, sort of split the the audio up into different channels. Whereas in mono there is only one channel. It cannot be exactly. split up. So I was just interested on because I I would have never heard a mono sound in a theater before. So I would just was wondering was that something that struck you within the theater or was it not until you sort of came out where you um, and sort of researched it a bit or maybe watched it again where you realized that it was in mono. 
I think I think one thing I realized was that like the sounds very forward. It yeah, didn't right. really feel like it was all encompassing. Yeah, it just felt which, like it was coming yeah, from yeah. one direction. Just in the middle, yeah. Which is Yeah, just in the uh, middle. So therefore like the audio like of the of the characters talking and the score and everything kind of like like molds into one. Um which is like it's honestly something you don't pick up on until you realize that it's honestly it's, it's coming from this one channel, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we've now gone half an hour without even talking about the story yet. So I yep. say we should probably crack on in. Yes. Good idea. Um, so yes. I'm going to sort of try skim through, but I will get sort of caught up on things as we go. So um, the first thing that I wanted to talk about, which I found really interesting with one of the shots is on the boat. Um, it shows the the front of the boat is sort of like moving through the water and at the front there's a little chain that hangs down off the boat and it's going on either side of the front of the boat the next shot we see is the two men just looking forward standing just above where that chain is just looking (laughs) forward out over the ocean and instantly like on the second watch not instantly on the second watch looking over that and obviously looking into it more um one thing i thought of was that these i wonder if it's like symbolic of these men's fates are changed together and that they can't escape one another they're going to be stuck Mm -hmm. with each other Mm -hmm. um i don't know if either of you picked up on that i don't know if it's intentional or not but i just thought it was something interesting and with an uh you're looking way too deep with a director like this with a director like this (laughs) i give him the benefit of the doubt because i know how much attention to detail there is um something i found interesting is all the facial hair is real um, Patterson dyed his moustache oh. though but yeah yeah their facial hair is 100% real um, Defoe has pre- prosthetic teeth which he joked about in an interview saying that most people think they're my actual teeth because his actual teeth <laughs> are not great <laughs> but they're not as bad as prosthetic teeth um, mm. the extras that we see at the start which I think is really interesting we only ever see two faces well properly two faces you sort of see the side of one guy's face as he's leaving um, the only two faces we see are Defoe's and Patterson's throughout the whole film. Mm. Um, uh, sorry, apart from um, the guy who's playing Winslow. Sorry, let me get his name. Logan Hawks as Winslow and Valeria Kyraman as um, the mermaid. But other than that, the mm. only faces we see for the majority of the movie are just these two guys' faces. Yeah, so like at the very beginning of the film as well, one thing like well, as they first sort of like um, arriving to the lighthouse, um, the first shot we see of their, of their faces properly is when they're looking directly yeah. into the camera. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, like that's literally the director saying to the audience, like you're coming along for the ride. You know, you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna experience what these characters are, are experiencing, and they're inviting you to yeah share their experience. That shot um, is absolutely stunning as well. That yeah, shot of them it, looking, it's such. I mean, David, you got it as your background. It's such <laughs> a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful shot. They're and, staring at you guys right now. Um, just just in that shot, just looking at the different facial expressions on their faces, it tells you so much about what their mindset is going into this. Like, mm-hmm. um, uh, who we think is Winslow at the start, which is actually Howard, is looking kind of like. Uh, I don't know if I made a good decision about this because they're watching the boat that dropped him off go away. And and obviously that's sort of um, indicative of the fact that that boat will never return for them. Um, but sort of Howard watches until it disappears into the, into the fog. And he's sort of, it looks almost like, oh, I don't feel very good about being here. Whereas Tom is looking almost just like, Yep, watching it, watching it, just sort of like as if he's part of the process and he's very, he's seasoned, yeah. he's used to this. Um, he's almost looking joyful and excited 
as as the boat's going away. You can't particularly sell it, see it in the still that you've got, David, but when it's moving, yeah, you can really distinguish the two different attitudes between the two men. Um, something else I wanted to mm-hmm. say just before is the extras who are leaving um, are actually crew members when they first arrived, the, the two guys mm-hmm. leaving off the island. They are like, I don't know what their role was, but they are crew members of the film and they just jumped in to sort of be leaving <laughs> as the two two main protagonists come and replace them. Mm. They better be paid a bonus for that. <laughs> <laughs> they better oh. be. Um, something interesting to talk about is just the island itself. And this was, um, recorded in Canada. It was all shot in Canada. Um, and they spent 25 days on the, uh, initial recording. I think it was 25, it might've been 35 actually, um, on the, what do they call it? Primary photography. I can't remember, um, principal photography. Um, and yeah, the, the, the weather conditions that you see in the film are the same weather conditions that these guys had to deal with throughout the whole recording process. The camera broke down several times wow. and the camera is built up of three different eras worth of technology from, as I said, as early as 1928 all the way up to modern day stuff that they were using. Um, and it was just a nightmare in terms of the actual sort of enjoyment process. But it's it's in, interesting. The two actors didn't even have a proper conversation until after the shooting was done because they were so exhausted from every day's work that they literally just went to bed afterwards. Um, Defoe stayed in a cottage by himself in complete isolation, whereas Patterson stayed in a hotel. However, on the flip side, um, when they came to meal time between recording and stuff, Defoe like chilled with the rest of the crew and everything. And... Um, Patterson sort of went in isolation and ate by himself. Patterson, for those who don't know, is known for being um, a fantastic actor, but can be difficult to work with. And he does some very strange things while recording. Like um, something he does before intense scenes is he puts his fingers down his throat and forces himself to gag. Um, He spins around in circles randomly, um, which he actually does during one of the shots. um, When he's dancing, he spins around. And I don't know whether that was part of the dance or whether he's just doing it because that's something that he does to sort of put himself in the scene. Also, one of the days where the water was dripping through the roof, between shots, he would go and just start drinking the water that was dripping from the ceiling um he's he's a strange guy when when he's um it i think he's a strange guy in general if you see him sort of interviewed even off the camera he's he's a bit odd but um when he's on the scene itself he refuses to sort of spend too much time looking at the scripts because he wants it to be his first performance is normally his best performance as opposed to Defoe, who's a more seasoned actor and he likes to rehearse and go over scenes over and over again. They are actually trying to rehearse before they started filming some of these scenes and Patterson just refused to do it. He was getting so frustrated because he wanted to be able to just rock up, take a quick look and just bring whatever energy was there. And so much of this film is improvisation Mm. and a lot of that i'm sure was forced by patterson because defoe as i said is more of a rehearse and perform guy but i'm certain that in some of the scenes where they're interacting patterson would be going off script and defoe would just have to move with patterson's energy so um yeah just something that i wanted to put out there these these two guys they're the real deal they really know what they're doing and i don't think it takes a genius to see how fantastic this acting performance is from both of them and we may never see an acting performance from either of these gentlemen as good as they give out in this film it is absolutely exceptional i mean like we're talking about some scenes where like like it's honestly just mind-boggling like for instance Willem Dafoe's character he's like the scene where he's being buried alive and he's literally yeah. just literal dirt being thrown in his mouth in his eyes yeah. 
and it's continuing to follow the monologue. Right? And you can see mm-hmm. the discomfort and it's not just acting, it's real. Like dirt yeah. is going in his yeah. mouth and he's having to yeah. give this emotional monologue as his, yeah. as his character. So he's playing a character who's dying while he's literally being buried alive, but also having to act that he's being buried alive whilst delivering an important monologue during the film. Like there's three things happening there and it's mm-hmm. just, yeah, yeah, it's just <laughs> incredible. And Patterson gives honestly, like, I think this is the pinnacle of Patterson's career at this point. Like, mm. I just remember this one part where he just, it's a moment where he just bursts out in like breathless laughter. And I remember in the cinema getting like, like goosebumps. Yeah, it was yeah, so yeah. like unnerving. His laughing is, it felt so empty, psychotic, tormented, broken, and like mm-hmm. it, it was something you look at him and you're like, wow, you can actually believe he's just, a man who's just lost, lost, the, plot. Yeah. lost yeah. the plot. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I would say there was a couple of times where I think Patterson is on the verge of overacting a couple of times, but I think he sort of walks that line quite well. Mm. Like some of the scenes where he's obviously you can see that he's losing it. I feel like he makes such a large jump to that crazed mood. Um, and they sometimes he goes full crazy a bit too early in the film, I think. Um, yeah. But... It's it's genuinely good acting. Um, I would just that's just a very nitpicky criticism that at times it just feels like he's overacting just a touch a bit earlier on in the film. Mm. Um, mm. But that's the nature of an improvisational actor is that sometimes they will sort of take that energy to a level higher than was probably initially mm. intended. Uh, one more one more thing about Paz's performance: his accent was very interesting. Oh, like yeah. he chose Both like a, very, a strange American accent. Yeah, when he when there was that drunk scene and he's like going off at um, Tom's character, right? Yeah, Are you talking about that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. like we talk about the, like the food, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like he wants he wants a steak and something like that. Like this, yeah. this you can, you can steak. Defeat- <laughs> <laughs> if I if I had a steak, if I yeah, had a steak. Um, yeah. These two accents were chosen very particularly by. Um, by both Robert and Max, they were they they literally when they were acting these these lines, um, like they would stop them and say, and I, I read this like Edgar Edgar would stop him and say like, can you deliver that line seventy five percent faster or seventy five <laughs> like something really specific. So um, these accents are are really good and they sound strange to us because they're from a different era and that's because this film is in a different era and the attention to detail that these guys put in is just amazing and it's it's why the film is so immersive it's why you get sucked into the story so quickly is because so much of what is there is brought in with research behind it It, it's there's only a couple things like um i read that there was a few little plot so for example when they're like digging like someone said that's a lot of dirt for a rock in the middle of the ocean. And it's a very good point. <laughs> like you shouldn't be able to dig a, a hole that deep in, in on a rock, basically. Um, yeah. And another thing was they were using a particular thing, which I can't remember what it was, but it hadn't been invented yet. It was like 20 years too early. Um, I'll try and remember what it was, but something that they were using within the film um, hadn't actually been invented yet. So, But yeah. in general, like the attention uh, to detail from that era was so, so good. Um yeah, that's that's all you, I have to say about that. Yeah, you can see it, like you can see the detention detail in the dialogue, right? Because yeah. they Eggers and his brother, while they're researching, they researched like old books that yeah. um, had interviewed lighthouse keepers, and they had to essentially recreate that vernacular um, in the dialogue. And 
mixing you know uh greek mythology language as well and and like this they made it so legitimate and so authentic and it's honestly a testament to yeah the screenwriting ability and also like the the actors performances because when they're performing it it's all it's honestly very for Willem Dafoe's character who's often quite eloquent in the way he like yeah he talks it's very difficult to perform that i think yeah you know the in, accents in are, are absolutely fantastic accents um, the dialogue yes know. absolutely so yeah. as winslow uh, sorry winslow um what's his name howard and tom are walking they've just arrived and as they're walking along the cliff face you actually see seagulls um flying above them and you actually hear the seagulls from right when the foghorn comes in as well you instantly start hearing seagulls um but you see seagulls flying against the wind and you see this all the time they fly against the wind but they're actually not moving they're they're almost being pushed backwards and i just thought it was really interesting given what we find out about the nature of seagulls in this film Mm. that it's almost like the seagulls are trying to escape the (laughs) island but they can't the wind is pushing them back and i just thought that was really clever because it could just be seagulls flying against the wind and you, you could think nothing more of that. But given the nature of what seagulls represent in this film, I think the fact that they're like trying to fly over the cliff, trying to get away, but they're just getting pushed back, I just think is really interesting. And it would seem as if, yeah, the the souls are, are trapped on this on this island. Um, mm. Something else you, you mentioned earlier on, Luke, things that sort of repetitively happen throughout like sounds and things like that so the foghorn is one another one is the ticking of a clock and i think it's really interesting because they definitely play with time in this film um at times Mm. it feels like uh, (laughs) at times i feel uh, times it feels like we're like skipping through um like random periods of time all of a sudden and like mm-hmm. it will it'll be like yeah we're one day into their stay and now we're like two weeks into the stay and it, it seems like it's the next day um and then obviously with what happens at the end um where uh tom sort of he says that howard has completely lost his eye his like reality and timing and stuff and he says that yeah you've been saying that for two weeks or whatever like this film is definitely playing with time and um, it's also playing with the unknown and it's sort of asking you who is right here who is like what perspective Mm. it's really interesting listening the actors talk about this because they said like during the film they had no idea whose perspective the film is from they didn't know what was real or what wasn't and even for us as a viewer it's still really difficult to tell what is real yeah. and even these things that seem to be completely not real why are they happening are, are, is he really seeing them are they dreams are they visions is this some kind of supernatural element involved like they really sort of play with um the the notion of reality itself and how sorry how time progresses within that reality yeah you definitely as a viewer you definitely lose track of how like at the start i think they're quite clear like oh it's you're you're leaving tomorrow maybe like, like let's celebrate yeah. type of thing and then like right after a little bit after that you're just like what the heck's going on like how long have these two been on the island yeah. together and like how long has the storm been going and how long have they been just like you know drinking yeah like, you lose track and of time like and i think maybe that's the um aim of the director like it kind of makes you want to like makes you feel insane yeah because you don't know what's wrong from right and you kind of have a blended um what's it called um perception of both of their minds together like you you see the visions and dreams um how it's seeing and then you see i feel like for me i felt like um tom was just trying to manipulate him the whole time 
but they're just yeah. kind of building off each other. But it's in interesting because it yeah. never confirms that either way. I mean, later on, it really does yeah. seem like he is. But even then, if we are watching the film through Howard's perspective and he is insane, then how can we trust what we're seeing? Um, but anyway, let's continue. Um, so Howard and um, Winslow, sorry, Howard <laughs> and um, Tom arrive into the house, um, into the lighthouse, and they're exploring. So as we know, sort of Howard sticks outside gazing at the ship leaving a little bit longer. So he goes in a bit afterwards and he's sort of looking around. He sees the cabinet where we know Tom's logbook is and he tries to get in, but it's locked. Um, and then he's distracted by the sound of water above him and he goes upstairs to the sound and he sees that um tom is pissing in a bowl and um i thought on the second time watching this knowing sort of the sort of uh friction that exists between the two of them and knowing that this film does sort of explore the concept of hierarchy and power i thought it was interesting that one of the first exchanges these two men have is um tom pissing down above um howard like it's it's very sort of overt show of power in in a way if you look at the symbolic nature of it um and then sort of howard goes upstairs to sort of see what's going on and as soon as he sort of is on a level level playing field with tom tom sort of farts a little bit and then it's just sort of like taint the space (laughs) and then he leaves presumably to go up to the lighthouse so as soon as howard gets on that level playing field with tom he instantly ups his his level again and it's like it's like um, as we sort of see with with Howard, there is a sense that he is chasing after power and his own freedom and his own um, sovereignty. And every time he tries to obtain it, Tom does something that undermines his his uh, mm. significance and his value. Mm. Any takes on that, or should I just continue? No, you're exactly. Well, you're, 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 you're like you just essentially yeah talked. Uh, uh, I I concur. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, this is the point where um, uh, Howard sits down on his bed and he finds the wooden carving of the mermaid, um, and nothing is really said about this. But we're to assume that this belonged to the the former. Uh, the sorry, the the second in charge who has died which we don't find out yet again but tom's tom's um second who who yeah we find out more about as it goes on but i sort of interpreted it as that belonged to him um and i think definitely as we yeah, progress and we hear some of the dialogue that tom says about this guy going crazy about mermen mer people and stuff like that it would definitely sort of suggest that 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 is the case um yeah. And then after that, we go into the first dinner scene. So this is the dinner scene of the first night. Um, and it's also the first dialogue that we hear in the film. And it's seven and a half minutes into the film. And it's the first lines that we hear. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. As I said, the accents are so exceptional and immersive. Um, and we hear the grace or the toast for the first time, which is should pale death mm. with treble dread make the ocean caves our bed. God who hears the surges roll, deign to save our supple, suppliant soul. Um, basically saying if we die and the ocean claims us, um, God, please save our souls. At least if, even if you can't save our bodies, um, which once again, a lot of foreshadowing in this film is foreshadowing what ends up happening at the end. Um, and I think it's safe to say that neither of their souls shall be saved. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the toast sort of creates the first scene of tension between Winslow 
uh, between Howard and Tom because Tom sort of says, why aren't you toasting with me? And um, Howard says, because it says in the manual that we we shouldn't be drinking. Um, and that obviously upsets Tom, who because he is drinking. Um, and I think also because as we find out, Tom is looking at every single opportunity to get one up on Howard or to write something bad about him. So the first chance that he sort of tempts him, he turns <laughs> him down. And I think part of that is why he gets annoyed. Um, but it ends up with a humorous moment. And I just want to say about the humor as well. They do such a good job of like changing the tone constantly. Like even in some of the darkest moments, there is humor within them. And yeah. it's just such a fantastic job to subtly shift between funny scenes and mm -hmm. really serious mm -hmm. and dark scenes and scary scenes yeah. at times. Like it's just such a, a wonderful job um, that they did during yeah. the writing. Just on that, like I, I found it, so funny when um what's it called tom gives his monologue about like if if i tell you to rebuild this lighthouse yeah, yeah. or like this house you will do it and you'll do it one time over or something yeah, like yeah. that and then right after he's finished with the monologue um how it responds by like, okay do it like what what does he say word for word like he says like Oh, what the, oh, I can't he just says, oh, no, 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 I'm getting the two scenes. I'm getting the two scenes. Confused. No, no, I know it's what you're talking about. Scene. I, yeah, yeah, the yeah. food <laughs> scene. When he's cursing we'll, we'll him, he's like, yeah, yeah. You, will, yeah, you will be cursed. You will yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, we'll blah. And it's that. like, oh, I like, yeah, I like your cooking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was like, fuck. To finish off this dinner scene, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, Tom, Tom basically says that uh, Howard is not going to be touching the lighthouse. The, the actual light, he's not going to be able to go up there. And um, how is like, mm. in the manual, it says we have to share shifts. And Tom basically just says, no, I'm in charge. You're not seeing it. And he says, see to your duties. The light is, the light mine. is mine. That's what he says. Yeah. Um, first time we see, and we're just like, why wouldn't he share this? You know, why wouldn't, what, what is it yeah. that's so special about this? Um, and then there's a lot of lenses through which we can view this film, if you pardon the pun. And one of them is through <laughs> the lens of power and hierarchy. So this could be a way that... Um, that Defoe's character is literally just saying, no, this is like my power. And, and it's just sort of in excluding him for the sake of, of saying, I am above you and I, I'm the only one who gets to access this. Another way is the more mm. supernatural elements of the film. And it's to say that there is something mystical about this light that um, Defoe's character does not want to share with Howard. And so there's different ways that we can view the film, but, but that's sort of one of them. Um, the first time... After this, that we see Tom in the lighthouse, um, he becomes naked and he says to the light, to ye, me beauty, and he lifts up his cup and he gives a toast to the light itself. Um, this is immediately followed by um, Howard's first hallucination or dream, whichever way we see it. And he's he's walking towards the, past the water and he sees the logs from his logging days sort of moving to, towards him in the water and the whole scene is kind of just bending around the light and then a body is revealed. Um, so at the time we don't really know anything about this, but of course later we fi find out that this was Ephraim Winslow, which is played by Logan Hawks. And um, Tommy Howard was in fact dreaming about his part in Ephraim Winslow's death. Um, then he, he's moving out to the water and this scene is just amazing. Fun fact about the scene is um, they had to do this scene, I think, 17 times because the camera kept fogging up, the lens kept fogging up. And so they had oh, wow. to keep redoing it again and again until they got it right. Um, so he would have been freezing, I imagine. Um, and he gets, yeah, as I said, Tommy gets pulled underwater as he's getting deeper into the water and he's he's loses this image of Winslow, but immediately it's replaced by a mermaid 
or possibly more accurately, a siren. And fellas, what could be another mm. name for a foghorn? A siren. A siren. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. I think not. <laughs> so, what's really, I find this really interesting is, um, and this will sort of come more into it as we talk about it, but there seems to be, because the thing, the, the myth about the siren is the siren would draw men in with their beautiful singing and then the men would drown, basically. And so, it's interesting that the siren, obviously, well, to me, possibly represents the lighthouse itself, the light, and that um, Tom is being like drawn towards the siren, the, you know, the, the foghorn itself. Um, and yeah, it's just like this symbol of power. It's a symbol of lust. It's a symbol of everything that he fantasizes about and he's constantly drawn towards it. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that you see that sign of what he wants appear right after he sees the body of the man that he had a part in murdering. Um, so any comments on that, guys? Nope. No. Nope. Okay. <laughs> other, other than that, that scene was just like amazing. Where like yeah. initially we were watching, it and he's just slowly like as he's walking towards um, the log and the, the, the dead man's body, and you use the audience you're just focusing on his face. So you don't know how deep he's actually going until yeah. like yeah, he's yeah, actually yeah. neck deep in water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you don't the even siren- know he's in water unless you look behind him and you see sort of the shallows. You you don't even yeah. realize that he's within the water itself. Yeah, and. I just remember just seeing the siren, like like the mermaid in the water, and I have I have thalassophobia. I have a fear of deep water right. and what lurks in deep water, and it looks so scary. Yeah. as swimming up to him and, and, and screaming. This this the screaming sound of the siren. It, it didn't. It, you know how the myth says that, like you know, it's a beautiful sound. A beautiful, yeah, yeah. It's not a beautiful sound. No, it felt not. so like it's like a screech, and it, it was really really terrifying. Yeah. When you first watch it, yeah. What's interesting is um, in some mythical interpretations of sirens, and you actually see this funny enough in Harry Potter, um, the it sounds like it's the the sound itself does sound like a scream until it's within water, and then it sounds like a beautiful voice, and you oh. you see that represented in Harry Potter, but you you don't see that in this at all. Even below the water, this this scream is most definitely a scream. Um, so that's yeah, that's something. Um, so now we see, um, Howard going about his duties and working very hard to do it. Um, and he goes to this water hole, which my understanding of what this is, I don't know this specifically, is that this collects water. And the idea is that it goes to the pump where you receive the water to within the house. Um, but it's got all this soot and dirt and stuff within it. And it's the water is, is disgusting as we see in the first dinner scene. Um, so Winslow goes about cleaning it. So he pours some kind of salt or purify or soap into the water. I I don't know exactly what it is, but then there's this really dramatic scene, uh, this really dramatic shot of the water sort of swirling around, um, and, the sort of the white of the soap or the salt or whatever yeah. it is and the darkness of the like water. And so, mm. I, yeah, David, you kind of just touched on it. The only thing that I could think of was that it looked like a storm or like, yeah, like a like a big wave or anything like that. Do you guys have any idea other than that why it was such a, they paid such like attention to that dramatic scene? 
Honestly, I didn't even know. I, I didn't even think about like this, the symbol, like symbolic nature of that shot. I just thought it, it just looked amazing because of like the interplay of the white, like yeah, yeah, yeah. soap of the black water. I just thought, I was like, wow. I was just absorbed, like, wow, look at that scene. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really think that, about that's, like. That's literally what I thought the first time. But the second yeah. time through, I just noticed that they paid such close attention to that. And I was trying to think of what yeah. else it could be. But the only thing I could think of is, yeah, David, as you said, like the pattern of the, the soap or whatever it is makes it look mm. like a wave or like a storm like it looks like a weather map and that it's like spiraling in yeah, like yeah. a storm and obviously we know mm. that what traps them on the island is well is a storm to an extent yeah. or maybe it's something else and should we like the thing yeah, the, oh, yeah. Oh, go ahead david the thing that made me think it had a like the water hole had a deeper meaning was because the later on or maybe we'll touch on it later but when the seagulls are found dead in the water yeah yeah, and that then was interesting. there's a connection of um, I I thought um, the seagulls are meant to, I know what they like. Well, what's what's his name? Tom Tom clearly like or like shares what people believe that seagulls are and like why it's bad luck to kill seagulls. But then I thought they were like the dead seagulls are meant to foreshadow or represent Tom and Tom or How- Howard and Tom, mm. but. That's interesting. Yeah, that's what I got because, because reason being, there's a scene that will come later again when they're just screaming what to each other. Yeah. And then when they're like so squawking good. at each other, it sounds like they're oh, both like seagulls. Like, I didn't uh, pick that up. Yeah. Yeah. That's so I was like, oh, wow. Like, wow. Okay. It must be, that's what they're trying to show probably. That's like, that's what, what is I it? Thought, Nemo? But, is it Nemo which does that with the what? Yeah. 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 What? 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 Um, what? What? But then. So, yeah. 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 Um, then we go on and we see yeah, Howard continuing to do his work um, mm-hmm. and he finds a leak in the, in the roof that he, that woke him up and he's fixing it and he pulls out a panel and then he sees um, Tom sleeping with his butt showing and you just see his his eyes and he's <laughs> so, so furious and oh uh, no i no i think i think it wasn't actually like him being angry or seeing it's like his like i think that what that scene was 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 that he saw um William the first character masturbating i think because then you see his the movements of see i wasn't sure yeah i, I wasn't I think, sure i think that was was, i think it was masturbation it was a scene of masturbation because there's a lot of Masturbation yeah, scenes in the I, film, I know. Right? I I, um, I I didn't know whether it was that because what I was thinking was potentially he was just this is where the fury of him having to do all the work was coming from. But I did sort of watch that several times because I'm just like, what is happening in this scene? Um, and I did that did mm, come to mind that is he because mm, you can see his hips moving and it's just like is yeah. it, is that just the, him breathing and it's moving his body or is yeah or is he masturbating? I, I'm not really sure, but. Um, I thought he was just sleeping and there was a little movement. I didn't think it was him, you know. It might have been. I, I'm not I'm not sure. Um because I think I think very soon after like the first, another dream sequence is when he um is going up to the lighthouse and then he sees um he sees um William the first character up there and then this is a very disgusting and visceral scene where he you hear him you see you hear William Defoe's moaning in in pleasure up there and then you see mm. like a fluid yeah. drip from the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. That, that's some and time then, away though. That that doesn't happen that close oh, after this it? scene. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So we're still very early in the movie and we've been going for <laughs> over an hour. Um, so the first time, this is after this, um, we see Howard pushing up his wheelbarrow and this is the first time where we see the one-eyed seagull and it's blocking mm. his entrance to the mm. door. And 
did we realize, so obviously we don't know at this point, but each of us, did we realize what the seagull was once we get later on into the film? Mm, I don't think so. Okay, so let me explain in case you guys see, haven't it's, picked up it, on that wasn't yet. It, wasn't it the, um, wasn't the first old... Um, yes. Yeah, like yeah, old, yeah. Like, yeah. No, no, no. Like he points it out, but I didn't like catch on that that was who it, like the seagull was who it was yeah yeah because like yeah so so we find out later on that um when he pulls the guy's head out of the water mm. the, the old second in command that he was missing an eye and this seagull is missing an eye and given the nature of the fact that it's dead um so uh, sailors souls in the i think this is mm. definitely mm. supposed to suggest that that seagull is the old second in command. So what I was interested in is second time watching this and it's blocking the door. I was thinking, is he trying to prevent Howard from going in? Is he trying to warn him and saying like, get away from this place? Um, Because that seems to be obvious within that scene. But then later on, it just seems like the seagull is just trying to piss him off. So (laughs) like, um, yeah, I I was curious. Did you guys have an opinion on that? Or do you think that um, he is just sort of trying to antagonize him? Because it, it would be advantageous. The just hates. Yeah, it would be advantageous because the seagulls obviously end up eating him, um, and that that cycle begins the minute that he kills the seagull. But I, I didn't know whether he's trying to tempt him into killing him, that like the seagulls t- attempting tempting him into killing him, or whether it is actually trying to warn him and say, "Look, I'm dead. <laughs> Don't go down the same path as me. This guy will will kill you." Mm. See, that's the amazing part of, of a seagull. Yeah. Everyone has a different interpretation, right? Yeah. I always, I always thought that the seagull was an antagonistic figure in the film. Yeah, that's what um, I thought the first time through. But the second time through, I thought it's almost like he's trying to stop him from going indoors. Um, and even when Howard threatens him, he stays there, and it's he's like squawking at him as, and, and that could be seen, yeah, as you said, as antagonizing him or saying, "Listen to me, like I'm, a, I'm a bird." Um, <laughs> So anyway, um, <laughs> I'm your friend, Howard. Uh, I just remember. Oh, maybe we'll go to it. We'll get to okay. it. Okay, Howard. Then, um, because he's been told that he needs to oil the the light, lifts a massive oil drum all the way yeah. up the spiral staircase. <laughs> um, and then the, um, Tom comes out and hands him a little handheld oil drum and says, "Like, <laughs> use this next time and take that all the way back down the stairs because otherwise you'll blow up the light." Oh, I'd be so pissed. Yeah. I'd ready what, to throw like, hands that, with that, Tom. Just seriously. enough. That just enough would warrant a physical like action of violence. <laughs> but then after that, he like as he's like going up into the light, he looks down and he's like, "Are you a dullard?" And he's just like no sir and he's just mm. like fooled me and he just slams the door to the yeah yeah and yeah. like at, the, at this point i just wrote down tom is a douche <laughs> <laughs> which i think is one of my most profound notes on this whole film and on that note we will leave it there for this week we apologize for the abrupt ending but we will pick up right where we've left off next week as always peace <laughs>